0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, today, my guest, is uh, he's become a friend and a mentor of mine. Uh, His name is William Miller. Uh, He was a radiologist, you know, a doctor for 30 plus years, pretty successful one. And then something happened to him and he decided to get interested in evolutionary biology. So we'll find out what that thing was. And uh, I have him here because he's got some, I think, just amazing insights and thoughts into evolutionary biology and consequently virology. Um, So I want him to be a part of this virus book that I'm making. And you probably heard some of the other interviews I've done on it. So, Bill,
2: thanks for coming. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm delighted to be able to participate.
1: Yeah. So tell me what, um, Tell me a little bit about your history you know, for listeners. What got you to become a doctor in the first place? And then you know, what, what terrible uh, gamma radiation exposure happened 30 years out to, to turn you <laughs> into an evolutionary biologist?
2: When I was in high school, I came from a family where it was absolutely understood that I would go on to college. That was just my, the background that I grew up in. And the question was really only what would I do? And uh, my father was an accountant, and he never could function well in groups. And unfortunately, to some degree, I thought I might be the same. So I was not crazy about the concept of corporate America. I loved science, and I thought that, and let's not forget, this is a long time ago, physicians were independent practitioners, not in these mega practices, hospital-owned practices like they are today. Today's... A medical life bears little relationship to when I had to make a decision. And so it was a combination of doing something I loved, but also something that I thought would give me freedom of personal freedom of action within the professional sphere. And so that got me started in medicine. And I loved medicine. I had a terrific career, Um, but I was always interested in other things along the way. And um, really quickly, I don't want to spend much time on this, but in... Radiology. You are uh, a common denominator for all of medical practice. All the specialties come to you for you to determine, uh, based on the body part that they're interested in, what's going on. And so you are. You live at at, at a as a radiologist. Um, unless you've deeply subspecialized, you are in a fulcrum, and you get to see all kinds of medical things. So you have a medical vocabulary that is uncommonly broad compared to most physicians, (laughs) even most general practitioners, because within the imaging sphere, you have to not only know the general things you have to know an awful lot of subspecialty specific things. But here's the point. What I was beginning to see through imaging were recurrent patterns of overlap, particularly how infectious disease could mimic cancer. And I really couldn't understand why that was based on the medical, Evidence that was the scientific evidence that was available to date and so I did start to to look certain things up about the way cells communicate, which is a very new thing back then and Trying to understand uh, Why we had recurring disease patterns if it should all make sense if if you had a very good theory and then I met Sue a girl named Sue so I was at a medical meeting in Chicago These are eight or 10 hours of lectures. By the afternoon of the third day, I was exhausted. I couldn't really think anymore. And I said to my partner, partner, "Um, let's go play hooky this afternoon. Let's go to the art museum or the field museum. You choose. He said, let's go to the field museum. And if you walk into that major rotunda, that, that huge opening space of the field museum in Chicago, you will see Sue. Sue is probably the best articulated Tyrannosaurus rex, uh, possibly in the world, and it knocked me out. It knocked me out particularly because I started to read the, uh, you know, the caption, the the information that was was there, and I couldn't quite understand how this particular species stayed the same for six million years, but even more so, as an expert in imaging, I really know my bone anatomy and I'm looking at this Tyrannosaurus rex skeleton really for the first time thinking about it in my life, and i noticed that the ribs of a Tyrannosaurus rex are a lot like human ribs, and uh, the humerus, the, the, the long arm bone, the upper arm bone. Not only was it a, a looks a good deal like it, but even where the muscles insert, there are particular ridges that you get to know, they're alike. And the, the pelvis, of course, huge differences in scale, was very much alike. And I didn't understand the concept of conservation of features. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it and I wanted to do it. And I raised some questions to my partner, my, I'm a very bright guy. And he just thought I was an idiot for asking them that, that all the questions get answered by knowing it takes a long period of time
1: mm,
2: yeah. and sufficient random motion over a long period of time could yield a Tyrannosaurus Rex or then eventually me to ask the questions about Tyrannosaurus Rex. And I found that absurd, even though it satisfied my, my great partner. And from that moment on, I began a romance that has continued uh, forward, and it has led me now to uh, develop an entirely new way of looking at evolution, uh, which does not displace Darwin, but simply explains certain features of it in a better way. And, um, and that's evolution based on cognition. So the issue for me and the virome is a direct one. How do we place viruses in the, in the correct evolutionary schema?
1: Yeah, that, that goes into the first question I asked that, you know, are viruses alive? Are they alive or not and
2: why? All right, so let's start by saying no one knows. But then but let me say what I feel to be correct, or what I believe to be correct. I believe that viruses are alive within, the, within their cellular context. And why might I defend them? Well, because being alive is being able to communicate, it's being able to reproduce, and lastly, it, it's, well, also, it is being able to problem solve. And viruses can do each of those things. They can make contingent decisions within the cell. Can they do that outside of a cell in an extracellular vesicle? I don't know that answer. That's certainly something that needs to be looked into and respected. But within the cell, it becomes a kind of a co-participant in cellular life and cells are clearly alive. No one's gonna argue that they're not. And they share a, a metabolome, And so they reach co-respondent, co-participatory status. So yes, I think they're alive within a cell. And I think there's a neat concept by a, a French researcher, Patrick Fortier, uh, and he's, he's published this over the years. It's called the virus cell concept. And basically it, it, it's a point of view uh in which he views viruses in a co-relationship with an infected cell and uh, and this this is true across all the domains and they form a, a novel type of cellular organism the virus cell, at which he regards as a living entity
1: so they're saying they form a new entity that is uh, unique and it's called a virus cell
2: the virus cell. yes he he regards this as um well, it's not a different domain of life. It's an interdomain. It, but, but it works for me, and I'll tell you exactly why. I think the most important point that anyone reading this book should get is that viruses are the major means of communication among the cellular domains. So there are three cellular domains. I don't know if this has been covered by any of your other guests, but there's a bacteria, prokarya. There's another form of... A uh, single-celled organism that uh, a lot of these are the extremophiles, the, the tough, harsh environments that certain single-celled organisms can sur- survive in, that's archaea. And then there's eukaryota. That's what you and I are. Those are uh, slightly larger cells with nuclei and also with um, a, a much higher number of a mitochondria or of energy cells. And and w- the origin of this these latter organelles the mitochondria and the the chloroplast, is believed to have been by engulfment and assimilation of bacteria by other cells. They formed a a co-production team endosymbiosis Lynn Margulis she was not the first to come up with the idea but she was it's a passionate spokesperson and a brilliant investigator and she did that a lot with Lynn Sagan Sagan to popularize the, the concept of endosymbiosis, which gets to the next important point. Viruses are communicating means between the domains, and they're symbionts. They are mostly working alongside of cells. Of course, we know that they can destroy cells. You know, that's, we know about disease, but that's the part that most people... Most people outside of, of uh, the virome studies, and, and even a lot of evolutionists, do not quite understand how dependent we are on the virome for our health and our stability.
1: When you look at like uh, three main types of behavior, that's what I'll call it, of viruses, um, you know, like lytic behavior, lysogenic,
2: and
1: then you know uh, when they endogenize into you know a host cell's uh, DNA or RNA. What governs the uh, the choice of that? And, you know, at least in the latent or lysogenic state, uh, that can go back to being a lytic state or an aggressive or pathogenic state based on host conditions. So what do you think governs that?
2: Yeah, this is a very profound question, and I'll tell you why. It gets back to the question of whether or not viruses are alive. If they're alive, then they're self-aware. And this is important because if they're self-aware, they are receiving interpreting and interpreting information, and then deploying their resources to best assist themselves. So to understand why they would kill some cells or coexist as plasmids in others, or would do any of the things that they do, uh, why would a polio virus attack some people and not another person? Why, why, was, why is COVID-19 basically a latent infection for so many people? Well, yes, we can answer that it has to do with an ACE receptor you know, the ACE2 receptor on, on certain cells and so on. But that doesn't get to the very basis of the question is, do viruses have states of preference? Do they care? And it's more than philosophical. Are they capable of contingent decision-making or not? Because if they are, then the means by which we will uh, learn to control them for our best benefit is going to be different. Are they automata or are they alive and self-aware. And this this is a real cross that is underappreciated, I believe, in virology today.
1: Yeah, and this is why I think it's 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 probably the unifying question of the entire book. Are they alive or not? Completely agree with you. If they're
2: alive, and then I, I first I'm gonna mention why I agree with what you just said, and then we're gonna talk about quasi-species as an illustration of, of the exact point of how we go about investigating it would differ in the case. So if they're alive within cognition-based evolution, which is what I espouse, then viruses, along with cells, exhibit certain features and faculties. So we know for certain, and this is not conjectural, or we can conjecture in a moment about viruses, but with respect to cells, it is certain that cells cooperate, collaborate, they're codependent, and they are competitive usually mutually competitive. Although in Darwinism, we always love to, to talk about nature, red and tooth and claw, and give it the drama of the Serengeti, completely forgetting that every cheetah that's on the run is a product of trillions of cooperating cells. You're just looking at the last, as one set of actions, of an enormous cooperative enterprise. So you, you and I are holobionts. We are a, a, a enormous collection assemblage of multiple species of cells our own personal eukaryotic cells those are the ones that those are the bill miller cells and then i have within me and on me another countless trillions of cells that we used to think were only hangers on these are microbes the bacteria that most people are familiar with their gut microbiome now but there's but the virome is a is an enormous part of the trillions and trillions of them that we haven't even begun to learn how to count them. And so we know that with respect to cells, those faculties of cooperation, collaboration, codependency and competition work together to produce the type of organisms that you and I are. It follows then that a really nitty gritty question is, are viruses alive? Because if they are, then they have to follow those same things. And so when we look at viral cooperation or super infection, uh, exclusion or, uh, or, or collective behaviors, we will understand them in an enormously different way. Furthermore, there's an enormous gap between picturing evolution as a long narrative of how cells choose to get along with each other across the, the, the domains compared to, to standard Darwinism. Standard Darwinism is, it stands on just a couple of pillars. One, uh, is that there's descent by gradual modification. In, in strict Darwinism, it has to be gradual. And it's, a pro- it's the process of random genetic variation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. In condition based evolution, it needs to be, it need not be either of them. There are certainly are random features, but that's not the major thing. The major thing is deliberation among the co participants. Our virus is part of that. Well, let's get to causal species. Why would all this matter to quasi-species? Well, we know that quasi-species are combination of viral mutants that that are variations that go beyond point mutations. So they're variant viral genomes that are being produced within a single infectious episode, at least in theory, that undergo a series of recombinations or duplications or segment um, changes, um, segmental changes and transfers, and they produce uh, what's termed a mutant cloud. It's, uh, it's thought to be a kind of a uh, robotic exploration of sequence space. So the concept is that the virus, not being alive and not having any deliberate abilities of any kind, goes through a series of random genetic shifts. And in so doing, it explores an adaptive landscape. It tries to find the best way for it to break out and do what it wants to do, which is to reproduce its 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 uh, genome. And then now that you know, there's a big debate whether, that, and I'm sure you've covered this with some of your other guests, between uh, it being just a, a swarm, a cloud, or whether there's a master fitness model, whether there's a major type of the most fit genome, and this is just little variations like uh, variations on a theme of paganini it's just a little bit of, of dancing around the edges well here's the thing if viruses are alive they're not dancing around the edges they are making deterministic within limits and to both deterministic and random changes and what are they doing they're exploring information space living things use information they're they're not just puppets on a string they're actually exploring the information space of the cell.
1: Outside of this conversation, that's why I, I gave you a couple of examples. I, I can see that if other organisms require not only multicellularity, but variations on the multicellularity. So like in my body, I require pretty much 200 plus different cell types in order to really function fully as a human. And a colony of bees doesn't just have worker bees and just only queens. It has you know, different bees, but, you know, which, which combined are this phenotype of bee, but they're different. And ants, same thing. Uh, bacteria and biofilms, there's probably some differentiation there. So why not viruses? Why, why don't they do the same thing with quasi-species and then act in concert as this combined phenotype to successfully infect?
2: Well, first of all, I completely agree with you. And I'll say quasi-species should be considered the model of why we, why we have what we have for ourselves. For example, quasi-species has been used as one of the origin of life theories. The idea is that um, a series of primitive replicons were established you know, in, in, in before protocells or with protocells and that these, this kind of a mutant cloud based on the quasi-species concept is how we got to present day RNA viruses and then maybe to life itself. But I'll go one step further, I want to agree with you. If you look at how you used bees, I'll use ants, when you see ants exploring their environment and and anyone that's looked at an ant colony and then watched how the ants go out and they're exploring to look for food and circling around in patterns that seem both non-random and random, it it pays to remember that genetically we're doing the same thing ourselves. We're always producing variance. That's the point of sexual reproduction is to go ahead and produce variants within limits that can explore the environment and bring that, that information back to the, to the cellular domains for billions of years.
1: Okay, so um, I don't even know if this is possible. If I was able to isolate one exact sequence of one virus, you know, I I'll just call it the XYZ virus. You know, if it had 10,000 base pairs and I was able to make an isolate and trillions or quadrillions of that virus and only that sequence and then infect someone versus, you know, what, probably what commonly happens with infection where you'll get all these variants of that, that virus, what do you think the effect difference would be? Do you think that the isolate would be effective or not effective compared to the, uh, you know, the, the varied population?
2: Well, I, I'll make a guess, and I think this is a question you should really ask expert virologists, but I, I don't think my guess will be far off the, the fact. Uh, I would expect that it would be low infectivity, uh, and that's all. That you know, that's easily defensible because the process of of becoming highly infective isn't is a part of an exploration. Uh, we've seen that even with COVID. With it, at least the theory is that the coexistence that the virus had in in bats or uh, pangolins uh, for goodness knows how long. We have no idea how long uh, the SARS-CoV-2 was. Um, in uh, you know, it was coexisting with bats and pangolins. Um, during that whole time, there's an exploration going on, learning how to change its infectivity either within that host or within a new host, us in this case. And so, if there was a pure breed of virus, just as as if there was a pure breed of dog, it would be very good at one thing perhaps, but it would not display the full panoply of faculties that a mixed breed will. And if you want robust survival, you want a mixed breed. You, yeah, we all know that uh, highly bred dog breeds uh, are highly uh, susceptible to, to a, a broad range of diseases that mutts generally are not. It's an inbreeding problem. So if you inbred a virus, you, you, the chance that you're going to get a super spreader from just that one single isolated string is very tiny. And so I think it would be furthermore the ability of a cell to combat it, to neutralize it, would be extraordinarily high. One target with lots of ammo, lots of intracellular ammunition to deploy. So the reason why what you're saying can never happen is because it simply is not an effective way for viruses to exist. And and therefore, they don't don't exist that way.
1: This would suggest there's very likely to be a level of coordination during an infection. Does it happen at the moment that Viruses uh, fused to a cell? Are they communicating through the cell membrane and signaling? Does it happen once they're inside a cell? You know, will you, will you have the multiple ones that get into a cell and then coordinate? Um, does it happen after a cell has been infected and that virus, you know, communicates using that cellular, cellular machinery to other cells to see if they're infected and, and how and coordinate action?
2: But let's talk in the general terms and, and, and using active biology rather than deep basic science and, and electron microscope. There are certain uh, viruses that really can only be effective through co-infection. So let me offer uh, the example of pleural effusion of lymphoma. The In that kind of a circumstance, you have uh, a system in which you have a B-cell lymphoma and it causes substantial pathology. It produces uh, pleural effusions, that's around the, the lung, pericardial effusions, that's around the heart, and peritoneal effusions, that's in the abdominal cavity. But the way for them to go ahead and infect these cells is it has, they really need to be a, a co-infection. You, you actually have to have an HIV-infected patient to begin with, these almost, exclude, this particular syndrome, a disease occurs almost exclusively in HIV-infected people, that have to then get a Kaposi sarcoma associated herpesvirus infection. And the thing doesn't really trigger and get blown out until they have an Epstein-Barr virus further infection. And so uh, this is an example of cooperative behavior, which is after each of them have infected the the target. Um, Let me give you uh, an example of um, before infecting the target. Um, there's a thing called, and, and this has to do with sociovirology. You know, we're talking about cooperation, codependence, and collaboration. So there is a movement to look at viruses along those pathways of behaviors, viral behaviors. That's an, a new science that's developing called sociovirology. It's not I've gotten a lot of attention, but there's very good papers on it. Uh, but one of the things they like to look into is a thing called entloiding employee is the circumstance where virium can carry multiple gene copies. So if you, there are certain paramyxoviruses and uh, phyloviruses and uh, inoviruses and retroviruses, they will have multiple viral genomes within a singular single envelope. Really? They're packaged Absolutely. that way? Yeah, yeah. It's called it's no. It's not the most common thing by any means, but it happens. And so... There's no question that there are some level of communication cooperation that goes on. Uh, I mean, for for differing genomes to share a viral envelope seems to go contrary to logic, but it happens.
1: Yeah, I mean, in order for that to happen, since it can only happen inside of a target cell, that means there's at least two different viruses coexisting in there that are not driving each other out. And, uh, you know, I guess you could say they mistakenly use a given variant or a given... uh, capsid to package their material, but I mean, there's got to be some cooperation. Otherwise, the cell wouldn't make it with those two in there, at least.
2: Uh, Here's an example of collective cooperation. something we truly don't understand. Um, Let's use two human examples. You know, as a physician, so I like to talk about, you know, biology in terms of human diseases. We know that phages can act to, to reduce infectivity over short periods of time. And they do that, it is believed to improve their long-term prospects and they are believed to be able to communicate and cooperate so that they, de- they, they determine facultative levels of lysis or uh, lytic behaviors. Which cycle should they go into? So how does this happen to disease? Well, take herpes. I mean, everybody's had cold source. It comes and goes. But if it comes, it's because a group of them got together and said, okay, it's time for Bill Miller to be uncomfortable. We're going to have a party. Um, I don't know what the cue is. No one knows. But we do know that they will go through these cycles in which they will cooperate to move around more than they would have, to be more active within cells and, and between them, and to incite uh, pathogenic reactions, sores and, and so on, to, instead of evading the immune system, they subject themselves to activity where, they may, where they're going to be controlled all over again. Take polio. Once the scourge of polio was was taken care of by vaccination, we came up with a new disease we didn't know, post-polio syndrome, post-polio myelitis syndrome. So someone that had polio and was apparently cured, decades later will suddenly develop severe uh, muscle and tissue problems, just wasting away. (laughs) And, And the reason is a previously latent virus has decided through collective behavior to become a recrudescence infecting virus. We don't know why, but we know that they act communally in this way.
1: Why, again, is there lytic behavior, lysogenic or latent behavior, endogenizing behavior, and why does it go between them? And then, you know, now you just kind of covered this. Why is there a latency period, you know, hours, days, months, weeks, years? What's going on during the latency period? Is it just exponential multiplication and quote-unquote, enough cells are infected? Or is this this quorum sensing this, okay, now we're ready to turn on pathogenicity?
2: I, I, I personally would believe that viruses, once they're in cellular milieu, are always active. Uh, it just changes the degree of their activity. Uh, one of the, I think, the big areas of, of productive research going forward, and certainly it's going to pertain a lot to disease processes, and I believe also to evolution, is the... Uh, the issue of uh, cap snatching and and the production of hybrid genes. So you, you have cells have messenger RNA and viruses will cap snatch, they'll take off a, a one end of the messenger RNA and insert some of their own viral genome onto the end. And what you'll have then is a, is a hybrid gene. It's it, And both the virus and the cell are contributing at first it was believed for a very long time that this process, I mean, this process has been known for decades, but it was believed that this was just one way. The virus is, and you know the, the phrase, and I'm sure you've heard it a million times, capturing the cellular machinery. Well, it's true, but it's also incomplete. In turn, the cell is gaining. it. The thing that, that I think needs to be explored more deeply in virology is to put it into its reciprocal action Context. There's the the basic prejudice has been that the virome uh, that viruses are nasty. They're pathogens and they attack us and they cause disease and we need to control them through antiviral drugs or or vaccination. It's true. There are viruses that do that, and they're highly destructive. But they're a tiny, tiny minority of all the viruses. First of all, we don't even know how many millions of viral types there are. It's just unknown. We, we just haven't had the tools to explore it. And even now, even with shotgun sequencing and all the metagenomics that we have, we're still just starting to understand this. So this, these kinds of protein capture, which can code, which can actually, I mean, this is a messenger RNA, a hybrid gene, these, these can yield protein products. And so when I said co-production, this is exactly what I mean. A still little understood interstices between viruses and cells is their common life. It it is not true that viruses just use cells and cellular machinery. Cells are using viruses as a critical part of their communication system. So we know that cells are producing extracellular vesicles. We know that viruses are triggering them. We don't really understand what the cues are. We don't don't have that depth of knowledge. Here's a good example of just what I'm talking about, how viruses and cells are working together in ways that are, are we still have only a very junior understanding. So let's take uh, an algae, uh, Emiliana Huxley, actually. And it has its endemic virus, uh, EHV. And so these, these algae, they can go and undergo bloom with, with enough nutrients, their populations can shoot up into the trillions very, very quickly. Algae, I mean, it's biblical, the Red okay. Sea. And all that stuff. So these algal blooms, there's a problem with that They're highly destructive for fish, and the ecology, the local marine ecology, doesn't suffers from this. So how does this process get controlled? What's the What's the final rate limiting process? Well, it's a cooperative venture between the algae and its endemic virus. So the virus infects the algae, and it highly produces extracellular vesicles. And what are in those extracellular vesicles? Well, some, viral, some viruses, but they have big tar- cargos that are, uh, that are comprised of small RNAs. And, and what do these RNAs do? They target the sphingolipid met- metabolism of the cells and affect the cell cycle pathways dropping down the reproduction rate. And at the same time, the, the, the virus is producing extracellular vesicles with that cargo. It's putting itself in some of them so that it can infect other cells and, the, and it, their half-life when they travel between the cells, because they're always at risk, is improved within the the extra vesicle uh, cellular compartment. And so what you have is is a reciprocating, complicated system between cells and viruses that control algal blooms. And and how tight is this relationship? Well, they share metabolic pathways. There've been at least seven gene transfers between EHV and IMViana. Uh, Huxley and these are are robustly related to uh, cellular metabolism so and, and they in, infect the, the viral cycles also so we don't really know yet all of these interrelationships and that's really where virology ought to go is uh, yes we need the we need the deep dive stuff but then we need uh, to spend a good deal of time trying to understand the, the largest concepts of the virome and how it affects our lives, and which really gets us back to the alive or not alive question. It's not trivial uh, because it, it changes how you frame things.
1: One thing I'm realizing from your example with algae, and I've, you know, I've seen it with other examples, is uh, since very few viruses are pathogenic, we should consider our virome to be three things. We should consider part of it to be pathogenic, a lot of it to be just commensal it's just hanging out and then part of it to be beneficial to us same thing with our microbes our microbiome our bacteria same thing with everything else in us you know and and, you know viruses can give bacteria abilities but they could also prey upon them but they could also just hang out with them and co-evolve i mean the virome does the same thing for us i would think
2: yeah actually this is very very important point and really resonates with me so we know that there are purely i think we can assume that they're purely pathogenic viruses smallpox is an excellent example and we don't know one good thing about smallpox but the vast majority of viruses are probably neutral they just probably don't affect us one way or another and then there's another group that's a, that are part of pathobionts, just like clostridia difficile so clostridia difficile bacterium is a constituent of every normal gut microbiome and it performs useful metabolic functions which which helps our gut lining and forms part of our immune system, our adaptive immune system. However, if let's say you get a, a serious infection, you're given a series of antibiotics and, and for some reason you're one of those people that that gets a C. difficile infection, it becomes a substantial uh, g- generator of pathology. No small thing. These are very tough infections to eradicate. So, there's a large proportion of our microbiome, our bacteria, the archaea, and the viruses that are capable of either doing either thing. In the end, this, the best way to look about on it is the way I know you do, which is a cellular life is a symbiotic form of life. It's, it, it is a mistake to think of microbes or viruses as hangers on. There is every much a part of us as our own personal eukaryotic cells. This is a tough concept for people. My medical doctor friends don't like it. It makes people very uncomfortable philosophically, that they're, by definition, a consortium, a living consortium. It, it intersects with issues of free will and a lot of other things that we're not going to go into today. But that's the way we need to look upon ourselves. And that's how the viral needs to be explored. And I, this is happening. There are, uh, some great uh, virologists uh, and another physician, Frank Ryan, he's written a lot about it and Virusphere and virus fear and, uh, um, and, and, uh, and other things. And then there's Luis Villarreal, who I know you've interviewed, um, who really understands concepts of viral symbiogenesis. It's not just viruses as symbionts with respect to our health, our living health. It's understanding that we are where we are as a product of the viral cellular collaborative living principle it, it's we can't have evolution without viruses being a critical intercessory between the cellular domains we we exist as we do as a combination of all of these specifically because viruses are there to provide one form of connecting linkage and so that's what viral symbiogenesis is all about what, with i'm uh, probably lewis villarreal has talked about that with you but if not um that's an important concept of his that that i admire and, and also so, Frank Ryan is the same
1: so um you know when i think of a virus inside of a cell supposedly it's just either dna or rna where is the life in it where is the agency in it it's weird you know how could it How how could it have agency and identity and all that stuff
2: well it gets to the life alive not alive it gets to that for me In particular, I'm I'm a particularly favorable audience for that question because in my work, I have defined life upon the principle of self-reference. The the principle of self-reference simply means that, uh, let's say, cells which are self-aware are capable of receiving information. This is important because there is no information in the absence of of a, a living observer. Let me explain a little bit. I don't think we have time for this, but... It's important to, under, to, to determining how you will examine the virome, you know, other than just trying to put together a vaccine as quick as you can kind of thing. You know, computers have data. They've got a series of, of communications between computers and their ones and zeros, and the pattern and the program determine output. But there's never any doubt. The computer never has any doubt about the data it's running. It's just data. That is completely unlike the living circumstance. Living things, have information. Information has a quality as well as 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 well as a quantity. What does that really mean? It means that living things know doubt. Things are uncertain to every living thing. We know that in our own lives, but it is particularly, it is true for every cell. A cell maintains its homeostasis by adjusting continuously to the environment. How does the cell adjust? It makes a prediction. So every single action of a cell is the deployment of information towards a living prediction. But you and I know that, that when we predict, we're not certain. Otherwise, we wouldn't call it a prediction. It, it's, it, it'd be an absolute. There's no need to determine a prediction or an anticipation, which is a behavior, a homeostatic behavior is an anticipation. It's a reaction to and an anticipation of. It could anticipate that the, it is reacting to a stimulus that is going to continue but that's still a prediction. The question then becomes, are viruses capable of prediction? And then we can start to construe a set of answers that you ask me, why is there latency? Why is there cooperation? Who determines when and how and why? So uh, unless we really do a little bit of extra studying of the terms of engagement, we're gonna get a lot of molecular and chemical data, but we still won't understand the essential aspects of viral personality and I don't mean viral personality like like you and I have personalities or our loved ones have personalities. We're talking about does a virus have a state of preference? Why does a virus want to go to a mucus cell lining my nose to give me COVID as opposed to my GI tract, which it does, but not often?
1: Here's a related question that comes directly from that. I, I know it doesn't happen with every virus, but it seems like there is some sort of a matching between the cell types infected, or the tropism, and the mechanism of further spread to a new host, if you want to characterize it that way, oh, sure. you know, like,
2: oh, oh, sure. I mean, we, you know, we can, we can give the molecular answer, and it's a good one. I mean, we know that the ACE2 receptor uh, complex is a focal point for COVID-19. It's important to know that because that we're going to determine therapies based on that. We can't make the absolute assumption that it's cause and effect. We could... If viruses are simply automata, if they're robots, then yes, we could just simply say, well, you know, it's, well, it's chemical. It's no different from oxygen meeting uh, hydrogen and making water. That We don't talk about that as, as a state of preference. Actually, there are philosophers that do, but we're not gonna go there. So, but we wouldn't look at hydrogen and oxygen and when, and when they make to make water, we wouldn't say, well, that's a state of preference. And actually, to some degree it is, because it's, it's, it's a molecular, state of stability that that suits those molecules. But living things are different and viruses, which maybe it would be best to consider a intermediate thing between animate and inanimate. Um, we have every right to ask those questions. I think it would be very productive for virology to do that. That would leave a lot of, of great biologists intensely studying molecules and chemical patterns and envelopes and and um, hairpins and and, non-structural protein sequences and something in the lab, but then you have another group that look into viral behaviors to better understand infection. And the point about understanding infection is one of the things that I developed in my early thing in my romance with Sue, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, was an early sensibility that you couldn't understand evolution without understanding infectious disease. In other words, one mirrors the other that there are going to be reiterative patterns that, uh, that I could discern from infectious disease and scale that into a, an entire evolutionary narrative. And in fact, that's a highly robust way to do it. I'm not the only person to look at it that way. There are, there are others that have come to the same set of uh, conclusions. But there is, I, I think the most important aspect of the virome is to, is to respect the fact that it's, an, it's a deeply entangled network of gene sharing. And more than that, it's protein, a structural protein sharing. We know that there's been abundant transfer of, of capsid proteins, uh, RNA-dependent uh, RNA polymerase genes. These come from double-stranded RNA viruses, and, and they populate the eukaryotic nuclear genome, our genome. It's not just retroviruses. It's, it's whole-scale viruses, integrated RNA viruses in, it, through horizontal gene transfer. But, but it goes deeper than that. We know that the tempered bacteriophages and retroviruses and and some tumor viruses, these are are mobile DNA elements. They form the the backbone of transposons and and transposable elements form the repetitive elements. Transposable elements is the great majority of our genome. So we have to understand these things. Secondarily, there's a, a huge network of of small RNAs in cells, we're only beginning to explore. We've got the names, there's RNA interference, there's peewee uh, uh, RNAs, there are messenger RNAs, there are micro RNAs, but here's what we know about them. And there are good papers on this now. They all participate in cross species and inter-kingdom communication. They're, they're there to maintain a cell and in its, in its metabolome, it's homeostatic equipoise, but it's communication. It's evolution as a verb than a noun. So that's my larger point. This is kind
1: of crazy. If um, if I'm willing to accept that, you know, a virus is alive and again, it's just supposedly a strand of genetic material. I wonder if even a, a cell is a holobiont unto itself, if all the RNAs, you know, have some level of Independence and agency, and they constitute like the microbiome of a cell itself, of a single cell in us. A... Well,
2: all right, all right. This is a great question. Uh, you're leading into something. We have a little time left. Yeah. How deep do we dive? And it's a, it's we, you and I have talked previously about Russian nesting dolls being a nice metaphor for certain things. Um, where does self-reference end? So we can we can state with absolute certainty, this is not conjectural in any way. All cells are self-referential. They have a certain limited cognitive capacity, completely unlike our own. Let no one reading this get confused. They're not thinking, but they are capable of assessing information and understanding that it's imperfect, self-aware. How deep do we dive does a virus do that? Could a microRNA know that? Could a microRNA determine whether it does that? Could a prion, which is just a misfolded protein, do that? Let me, ask, let me tell you why. We know for certainty, certain prion diseases, met cow disease, for example, that prions can determine to act collectively. They make a joint contingent decision whether or not to begin the active process of infecting someone. Let's talk about, just for a minute, mimi viruses, large viruses. Um, and here's what I like about them. They're, when I mentioned that they're an intermediate state, um, whether it's alive or not, whether we could call it a transition. Um, let's let's so mimiviruses were discovered when amoeba were gulping down bacteria. Occasionally they gulped down some other thing that was just about as large as a bacterium or an archaeal cell, but it wasn't. It was a nucleocytoplastic large DNA virus, an NCLDV. And because it was mimicking a Bacterium, they they called it a Mimivirus, a a mimicking virus, uh, now of the Mimiviridae family. I would have preferred if they named it after and M, but that's not what it was. So (laughs) I knew you'd appreciate that. So uh, what are the important things about this this giant virus? I mean, it is huge compared to other viruses. It has a huge genome, 500 or more genes, sometimes up to a thousand. We only have 19,000 ourselves. 19,000 coding genes. It has protein functions that are hallmarks of cellular life. Cellular organisms, They're, and none of this. Uh, these large viruses, they don't share a genome with any other viruses. Bits and pieces, but not, but but not a genome that you can superimpose on the other. So when you do the, a blast investigation of the of all this, and you come up and you want to know. Where do the protein sequences that are coded from the genome, what do they most resemble? Well, 45% are eukaryotic sequences, and 22% are from bacteria, and the rest are from other viruses. So, and here's the other remarkable thing about the box within a box, it's capable of DNA repair. It can repair its own DNA. No, no virus is supposed to be able to repair its own DNA. That's why it goes into a cell. <laughs> and further yet, to make it even crazier, the giant virus can have it. A very large number of virophages. The first one was called the Sputnik. They they identified the first one, so they made it after, they named it after the first satellite, Sputnik. Virophage.
1: A virus that has endogenized into some creature's DNA. Let's say ours. Um, at what point does it lose its identity? And it, you know, no. do we do we know? Like, do viruses ever? You know, I know HIV endogenizes, and then it once it does that, now it can make more HIV. But something that endogenized a long time ago does it still maintain its identity or is it gone? Does it give it up once it's inside of us?
2: My point is, yes, I can look at it that way and there's certain validities, but that's looking at life as a noun. A certain sequence sits beside another sequence. Whereas you and I are talking about looking at it as a verb, as a action, as a transfer. So it's not the thing as it it is, it is in what it is transiting through and towards. And that, that is a very different way of looking at the virome. And I think it's catching on, I, I, I do. I think even empty virions have to be looked at differently. If a virus is alive, let me put it differently. So in evolution, there's a general principle of parsimony. In other words, the simplest answer is the best and biology does, is not a wasteful thing. It has to conform to strict thermodynamic rules and losers lose winners get to reproduce. So parsimony, getting down to efficiency, is a very major point in biology. And I don't think there's much resistance to that point of view. Well, then you'd have to explain to me, because I can't explain to you, why it is that you can have, in certain viral infections, you'll have viral envelope proteins popping out of cells that could be a hundred or thousands of times in excess of complete virions. And not Mm -hmm. only that, you could have totally empty virions, and what in, in a thousand times more common, or at least a hundred times more common than complete virions? Why?
1: I, th- I think they may be decoys, actually.
2: No, but- no, we agree. They could be flooding the, the surface, they could be decoys. It's an awfully expensive decoy system. Are they being inhabited at another point? Are they, are they any different from extracellular vesicles? Here's the question that, that's a good one. That that should be posed, and I think has been posed. Shouldn't we be modeling extracellular vesicles on the basis of empty virions, and they, they get packaged? Yeah, you know, I'm not saying that's the correct answer. I'm saying ought we ought we not to look at it and, and examine it from that perspective?
1: Yeah, I think they're very like plasmids. You know, extracellular vesicles. Uh, that's why viruses are tools, used tools are used as tools. I mean, they're they're all those things at once.
2: Very good. Well, uh, let me conclude. We've just scratched the surface of the virome. The extent of it is incalculable compared to what we'd understood before. Let's just take a, I read this just recently and it stuck in my mind. Let's take a milliliter of seawater. So the virome, the marine environment is totally dependent on the virome. You cannot have a healthy marine ecosystem without a huge coexisting healthy viral, whatever healthy means for a viral. So, let's take one milliliter of seawater, that's like 20 drops out of a dropper. So, it's a tiny amount. There are at least 10 million viruses in that, millions of bacteria, and thousands of other tiny creatures, tardigrades, and protozoa, and algae. And every square meter of this planet is calculated that about 700 or 800 million viruses fall every day, and tens of millions of bacteria fall every day on every square meter of this planet. There are more viruses on earth than there are stars in the universe. They're everywhere from as deep as we've ever been able to get a, a shovel, you know, a, a, a sample, as far down as in the crust as we've been able to go to as high up in the troposphere as we've been able to go, they're present. And somehow or other, they're able to support their metabolism and their reproduction in all of those environments. So I think it's in, imperative uh, for us to, to really honor the concept of the virus sphere as being a vital co-participant in our evolutionary narrative and in our health. And we've not even begun, uh, other than looking at antibiotic resistant patterns and how to, to use phages uh, creatively to combat that, uh, we've, we routinely ignore the virus in, in, in matters of, of human health. And when we begin to harness this, starting in the next few decades. I believe that there will be an enormously positive um, product, uh, a great reward for understanding yeah. the virome, uh, especially when we understand behaviors in addition to molecules and chemistry.
1: I just have two quick questions. Sure. If I have a, um, a cell and I suck out you know, a lot of the essential components of it being able to function, I maintain the membrane, all the receptors, all that stuff, now, a virus comes and is going to fuse and enter. Does it stop midway and sense something's wrong, or does it just continue on on its merry way and enter the cell and then say, oh, now I can't, uh, now I'm stuck, I'm screwed, you know, I'm in a prison here?
2: Okay, so you never expected to get an ordinary answer out of me. You've asked me a question, and the answer lies into whether or not viruses have a senome, S E N O M E, senome. senome. The synome is a new concept that uh, Frantisek Polushka and I at the, uh, the University of Bonn have talked about with respect to cells. Cells have a synome, which, is, which, is, which we consider and we've published about, is, is the total assembly of the sensory apparatus of the cell. All of it, everything it can deploy to receive information that it will assess and then deploy. Whether or not a virus will enter a damaged cell or not, I don't know. But the answer would be it wouldn't if it had a senon because it would, if it could, would choose a better place to go. Now, the problem is maybe it would and then it would, then it would find itself an easier ability to create an extracellular vesicle with, the, with cellular machinery, of course, uh, and, and hitch a ride that way to the next cell. I, so I don't know the answer. But the question is, does yep. a virus have a sensory apparatus and know that it no? Does it know its environment? Mm, right. Yep. And then
1: last question: um, If I, if let's say I was the first one to contract, you know, SARS-CoV-2, I label myself number one. I cough on you. You're number two. You get it, and it keeps going and going. And we get up to, you know, person number fifty that has gotten it. It's been passed through, forty nine other people. What would you expect to see in terms of the differences in pathogenicity and um, structure of the virus itself?
2: Great question. There would, be some, uh, there would be some shift. In the first 50 individuals, there would be kind of a point mutation that could be seen as a shift from patient 1 to 50. But the, the actual infectivity would almost certainly not be different at that point. Um, my guess is that within the first 50, it's not nearly enough time for it to explore its phenotype, its phenotypic advantages within cells through quasi species to get to that. No. So I would say I would vote no, no change in, in, change in, in genome, but not in action, not in, not in its ability to infect.
1: Well, very good. Uh, Bill, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they see your papers and learn more about you and your thoughts?
2: I wrote an excellent book, which is, that outlines a lot of these same thoughts. Uh, It's called The Microcosm Within, Evolution and Extinction in the Hollow Genome. Um, It's filled with, I think, uh, interesting and different points of view about evolution and particularly how it it should be properly modeled on the basis of infectious disease. Um, You can go to my website, themicrocosmwithin.com, and I actually do have a nice science Twitter feed at BillMillerMD. Uh, it's no politics, just, just excellent science articles that, uh, that I post, um, really just because I like them. <laughs> uh, nothing more than that. So I would invite anyone that's reading to consider those things.
1: Okay. Well, thanks for coming. This is awesome. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. It was terrific. If you like this podcast,
1: please click the link
0: in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.